I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. What the American people want more than anything is work with the moral and spiritual lift that comes with it and the security that work gives families and children too. It was that simple in Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal speech in 1932, pointing the American way up from economic breakdown toward industrial supremacy in the world. Today, the race is back to the bottom in a wide-open global marketplace that's industrialized, digitized, fiercely competing for unorganized, low-wage workers and unpaid robots. So, what's to do this hour in part three of an open-source series on work? Here is a taste of the political talk today about what we want urgently again. In order, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, and President Obama. The world is changing. No one, no one should work full time and still live in poverty. When I'm asked about whether or not we should raise the minimum wage, I have three answers. Yes, yes, yes. But raising the minimum wage is only the beginning. The time has come for us to begin investing in jobs and education for our kids, not jails and incarceration. It is paid for by closing the carried interest loophole that allows billionaires to pay a lower tax rate than working class Americans. I'll be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. I'll take them back from China, from Japan, from Mexico. They don't like us and they're beating us. With me, they'll like us and we'll beat them, okay? We have to bring back our jobs, Chris. We have to do it. We have no choice. Thanks to a growing economy, the recovery is touching more and more lives. Wages are finally starting to rise again. We know that more small business owners plan to raise their employees' pay than at any time since 2007. But here's the thing. Tonight, together, let's do more to restore the link between hard work and growing opportunity for every American. We hear urgency in Street Talk 2 and all kinds of remedies at the ready on Boston Common this week. I think raising the minimum wage is a pretty good idea. The national minimum wage is something like $7.25 now, and nobody can live on that. A better national health plan would be good for all workers, like Medicare, for example. Medicare is good for the working man. Childcare, the number one issue to help working Americans. Businesses need to provide daycare for these mothers with children. Better transportation, public transportation. We could help American workers by enforcing our immigration laws. I think that more practical types of education around job skills in high schools and beyond would be a great thing to increase the workforce. I'm 28 years old. I only very recently achieved any sort of financial stability in my own life. But I think the sooner we put away this like Cold War mentality of, like, oh, socialism bad, the sooner we will just find a thing that actually works for people, like plural people. Okay, I think we need to reinstate the CCC and the jobs program, like from the 30s. We have so many roads and infrastructure that needs to be fixed. It's not up to the government. It takes people working together, working together as a collective group. The 19th and 20th century battles that built our industrial might were part one of this series. 
the buzzwords of our financialized 21st century, freelance gigs, the sharing and flex economy where security used to be, were part two. This hour, workers in an epic transition, finding, some of them, dignity and fair shares in a new reality, doing an honest day's pay to bring home their daily bread, as Pope Francis told Congress this week, to build a better life for their families. We're taking the Pope's cue to reflect on the creation and distribution of jobs and wealth as our bit of service to the common good. The eminent theologian Harvey Cox, teaching the Harvard course this year on God and money, is here to help us get the Pope's message. We begin with the activist economist Gar Alperovitz in Washington. He has built a new system project on his long independent diagnosis of the old system in crisis. Gar Alperovitz, welcome. Would you describe this this state we're in? It's still unclear to me, but between systems, you seem to suggest. Well, I, I think that's that's the reality that's just beginning to be understood uh, in the Bernie uh, Sanders uh, explosion of interest in the Pope's interest. Uh, the Pope is very clear about it. He thinks that the real the problem is capitalism. Um, and, and you know, most people under thirty, when asked by uh, pollsters are indifferent as to whether capitalism or socialism is better. In fact, slightly mm. favor socialism. There's a sense that something much deeper than what we normally talk about, uh, and I would say beyond both capitalism and socialism, that we're facing a systemic crisis, something that's very, very hard to deal with. And most people think if we elect one politician, possibly he, will, he or she will pass legislation in a different direction. I think that's true. But what's different is the, the kind of legislation you can pass doesn't change the trends. Hmm. Uh, they, they, you might get a, a small change here on Medicaid. Medicare is the most important one, and it has a very interesting history, but it's about the only one. We raise the minimum wage, but we're still way behind where it would have been if we'd raised it and kept up with inflation, even when we raise it. So we do get changes. But the long trends don't reflect the changes. In fact, they're going south. So what, what are the alternatives and what are the risks? Well, I think we are building up the period, you know, before the New Deal occurred. In the states and localities around the country, there were many, many experiments, the kind of experiments that laid the groundwork for what later became Social Security, hmm. what later became labor laws. These were it's a welfare programs. They were started there, too, pension programs. I think we're in a period of enormous experimentation at the local and state level that the newspapers and the television hasn't paid any attention to, uh, partly because they're not interested and partly because newspapers at the local level just don't have the reporters anymore. But I think you can see the shape of something new building up that has a kind of different vision of where we might go that takes us beyond both the systems in a, in a very kind of American way. Remind us of what we don't know. You're talking about yeast, under the radar, so to speak, mixing metaphors. Yeah, sort of under the radar, but if you go out locally and, or if you're in the, the networks that you pay attention to this, there are a lot of researchers doing it. For instance, most people don't know that there are 130 million people involved in co-ops of one kind or another in America. Say it no. again, 130 million? 130 million, if you include all kinds of co-ops. Banks. It's credit unions are included, agricultural co-ops, worker-owned co-ops, uh, just a dozen consumer co-ops. Uh, now, what is that? A, consumer, a co-op is a different form of democratic ownership rather than corporate ownership. But there are lots of people who do it every day and don't quite realize that they're doing something different from the norm. 
There's another 13 million men and women involved in worker-owned companies in the United States, and most people don't know that. And again, that's a different model. It's not socialism, and it's not uh, state socialism, and it's not corporate capitalism. It's something else which starts at the bottom, changes ownership, democratizes it, and begins to suggest kind of an image of where we might go, uh, you know, in analogous to the New Deal when, when, when the conditions are ripe, what might happen if the country really took this on. Much of this, by the way, if you look in the red states, uh, Nebraska, for instance, has the entire state has got a socialized electrical system. Now, what is that? It's public utilities throughout the entire state, no private utilities. Hmm. Still another form of public democratic ownership. Um, one of the reasons this is important is not only does it change who gets to own the wealth and, and benefit from it, but, you know, the top 400 people in the United States, this is a staggering statistic, the top 400 individuals, you could get them in a large, large classroom, have more wealth than the bottom 180 million people taken together. Hmm. 400 versus 100. I gave that number in a, in a lecture one day, and I said that's a medieval number. <laughs> I think Michael Moore gave us that number once upon a time. Yeah, the word medieval, but a medieval historian came up to me afterward. He said it was never that bad in the medieval era. <laughs> It's really uh, it's hard to get your head around how concentrated wealth is, which means that a lot of people don't have any or are in negative territory. But what's what's interesting, building up, and we could go through you know literally thousands of experiments under the radar that share this principle at the local level of somehow changing who gets to own. And, and I think that we're beginning to see a forecast, uh, particularly as the political pain deepens and none of the old. This is that's why it's building up. It's because people need answers, and the, the political system is not giving them. But Gar, I would have to say, and maybe I'm ill-informed, but you don't feel uh, ferment in the air. Certainly not when you look at that House of Representatives that we were looking, we're seeing today. I mean, where where is the agitation? What's the direction of things? Well, that's very interesting because, as you probably know, I used to run legislative staffs in both the House and Senate, um, and that's the last place you see change. The first place you see it is on the ground. And if you go around in, in many cities, let me give you an example. If you go to, uh, say, Cleveland, Ohio, please, uh, there's, a, in the, there's a neighborhood of about 40,000. The average family income is 20,000. Average unemployment is something like 40%, very poor neighborhood. Right in the middle of that neighborhood, there is a really interesting complex of neighborhood, and attached to it are very large-scale worker-owned companies, for instance. Hmm. One of them is the by far the largest urban uh, laundry, green laundry, serving hospitals. It's, it uses very little water, uses very little heat, and serves the big hospitals in that area. Another one is a greenhouse, uh, not a little one. It, it produces something like three million heads of lettuce a year. Again, worker-owned and part of this complex. And still another one has put in the largest solar array in any, it's a solar installation, worker-owned co-op, but part of a community complex, and even more, supported by the purchasing power of hospitals and universities in the area, the Cleveland Clinic. For I was going to say, where does the famous Cleveland Clinic, exemplary city hospital, where does that fit in? Right in the middle of this. And, and Cleveland Clinic, one of the world's greatest hospitals and research centers, is part of a complex that's that sees a new model. We'll use lots of government money in healthcare and Medicaid, goes into those hospitals, pour some of those contracts in to rebuild something that builds the community, changes who owns wealth, has a democratic form, 
So that kind of a model, which you, you probably haven't heard of, but there are many of these beginning to develop around the country. And what's driving it, what's really driving it is that nothing else is working at the national level. So Gar Alpers, please, please stand by and don't, don't go away in our th- part three of a three-week series on work. We're trying to get a name for this odd transition and condition we're in and look at what's coming. Coming up, a closer look at prescriptions for minimum wages, job guarantees, that sort of thing. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Create jobs to put food on the family table. Share the wealth to serve a common humanity. Those were Pope Francis's gentle admonitions to Congress this week. So just where would you intervene to stimulate the economy and level the playing field? Outside Congress, if not in... The experimental spirit is alive and well. We're sampling some remedies that serious young people are advocating. First, Matt Brunig says, With child poverty all through our society, build the rising generation with direct dollars. He is a Texan with a Boston University law degree, and he studies and writes from the Demos think tank in Washington. Demos as in democracy. The way a child allowance works is very simple. Every month, all families that are raising kids would receive a certain cash benefit based on how many kids they have. The proposal I've been making has been to give every family $300 per kid every month. If your family have one kid, you get $300 a month, two kids, $600, three kids, $900. And that money would be directly deposited into your bank account every month by the Social Security Administration. That's how you would do it. It's pretty simple. It wouldn't be difficult to implement. They just need to sign people up, get them on the rolls, and take their bank account information, just like we do with Social Security, but in this case, uh, directed to kids. The benefits of this kind of program are you're directing income to families with kids, and families with kids have a great need for income because kids are quite expensive. According to the USDA, kids cost you know around $12,000 a year, so that's about $1,000 a month. $300 is not going to cover that full cost, but it's going to make it a lot easier. In the United States, we have really bad child poverty problems, one of the highest child poverty rates in the developed world. And families with children, especially young children, tend to be fairly poor because they're not that old. So they might be 25, 26 years old. And, you know, you're 25, you're 26, you're not too too deep into your career yet. So this, this money could really help you out. This is not an uncommon uh, program, it should be emphasized. It's very common throughout the world. Canada has it, the United Kingdom has it, certainly all the Nordic countries, Finland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, they all have it. So it's, it's not something that is sort of untried or weird or radical. It's pretty common throughout the world. The main criticism you get from people is, well, if you pay people to have kids, won't people just have kids so that they can make money, so that they can sort of profit off this program? And the answer is, you know, no, probably not, right? I mean, that's a money-losing proposition. We do have some studies from elsewhere in the world that tend to show that these benefits maybe increase fertility by about 3 to 7%. That's really not problematic. And if anything, given the age structure of our population and uh, declining fertility rates that we've had recently, a little bump in fertility could actually be a, a positive thing, demographically speaking. So that's the proposal. Pretty basic. Give money to every kid universally. Doesn't matter how much money they're making. Cut poverty, cut inequality, 
good things, good things all around. That, that would be my proposal. That was Matt Brunig of Demos. Dylan Matthews is a young pundit from New Hampshire. He's now a senior editor at a website that explains the news, the website that does the job, Vox. He says we'd be better workers, happier people, if our base income was guaranteed by the government. Sort of social security for everybody. If we want to eliminate poverty, one way you could do it is just set it at the poverty line. Nine, $10,000 per adult per year for it to be a real alternative to people taking service sector jobs and, and for it to serve as a means by which to improve conditions in those kinds of jobs. One thing that McDonald's can do now because of the way our system is set up is say to low-income workers, hey, working at McDonald's is the worst, but the alternative is that you will literally starve to death you have no other option than to work in these miserable conditions. What a basic income does is set what economists call a reservation wage. People always have this fallback that if a job is too crummy or their employer treats them too badly, they can always fall back on this money. It's not ideal, it's not their first choice, but it's, it's, a, it's a fallback. And so employers have to negotiate with that knowledge in their heads, knowing that if they push things too far, if they're too abusive of workers, that workers will revolt and can credibly do that without hurting themselves in the process too much. The closest thing in the U.S. to, to a basic income is the Alaska Permanent Fund, which is an endowment that is managed by the state of Alaska, funded through fees for oil and gas extraction that provides a check to every Alaskan household every year that depends year to year based on investment returns, but it's typically three to $4,000 a year. And this has been ongoing since the 70s. It was introduced by a Republican governor. It has been supported and sustained by Republican governors. Sarah Palin supports this. It's become beloved and become a very important political institution in Alaska and shown one viable way this could work. A lot of the sort of private welfare state that grew up out of World War II has started to fail some people. Uh, employer-based healthcare only works if you have an employer. Um, employer-based pensions only work if you have an employer. It's worth thinking about ways that we can provide a safety net that aren't tied to employers. And the simplest would be a basic income. Poor people aren't stupid. Poor people know their lives better than people in Washington know their lives. The rationale behind giving poor people money is to trust them and to, to trust in their expertise about what they need. There's a humility in that that should appeal both to, to liberals and to conservatives. It's, it's a really anti-paternalistic idea. It's, it's an idea that sort of trusts in individuals and, and their ability to plan for themselves. That was Dylan Matthews of Vox. Gar Alpovitz, what's your take on universal basic incomes? Oh, I think it's a, it's a very good idea. The uh, levels are, are not high enough to do the job. But, you know, in Alaska, as the speaker was saying, if you have – it goes to every single individual in the state as a guarantee. So a family with two, three kids, that's five people, would typically get $10,000 a year. Uh, and it gives people a choice and it begins – again, it's using the ownership of this resource, oil in this case, um, to generate income which can be used to support a good social purpose. Uh, it's not a tax program in typical form. It's actually using the direct uh, state's capacity to capture these oil resources. It turns, so, yes, the, in favor it, of it. It turns the economy, I was going to say, Gar, uh, uh, it tells you something that both Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter have favored a guaranteed income. 
Lost you there. Uh, sorry. I mean, it tells you something that Presidents Nixon and Carter both at various times were in favor of a guaranteed annual income. But there's also an argument that people need jobs even more than they need the money for the psychic income, the identity, the place to go, even temporarily. Pavlina Cherneva makes that case. She's a Bulgarian-American economist at Bard College. Listen. Guarantee everybody a job. What does that mean? It basically means converting the unemployment offices to employment offices. And when somebody has been laid off from work and would like to do something, and the private sector has not found use for them, if you will, we can guarantee an opportunity. We can guarantee that they will be an option to work for the public good. And that option is guaranteed by public policy. What kind of work? Well, what kind of work do we need? I mean, that's the first question. We look at the conditions of our communities. Usually, the communities that have the most unmet basic needs are the ones that have the most unemployment. You know, we have a bit of a coordination problem. We've got people who want to work, and we have a lot of things that need to get done. There is the well-known food desert problem. There are many communities that have no access to decent food. And the only option really is the convenience shop or the gas station for food. So community gardens seem like a very simple but essential thing that can be done. And it could be done by people who are looking for work. How about care? Some of the greatest deficits are in the care of kids, of the elderly. We can certainly have after-school activities, more programs for the retired, teacher assistance. Look at every Red Cross center in the U.S., are they staffed accordingly? Do we need a little environmental rehabilitation, whether it is planting trees or parks or even small infrastructure investments? It seems to me that this kind of ground-up model is a good model of involving the community and those who are most in need in participating in and sort of shaping their own destiny. So you just think of a, of a Green New Deal. We kind of invented the model in the United States. There's absolutely no reason why we can't embrace it again and fit it for the modern needs of the economy and run with it. Modern advanced economies have figured out how to solve specific economic problems. Maybe not very well, but we generally solve them in a direct way. So if the problem is homelessness, we provide shelter. If the problem is food insecurity, we provide food. If the problem is retirement insecurity, we provide retirement income. But when the problem is unemployment, we do not offer a job. Right? When the problem is joblessness, we provide some you know, meager unemployment insurance and that's it. So I'd like to think of this program also as an employment safety net that solves in a direct way this final piece of the overall safety net. That was Pavlina Cherneva at Bard College. Gar Alperovitz, your turn to run with it. Uh, your hobby horse. Give us a, 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 the Alperovitz well, experiment. Well, all of these all of these programs are make entire sense. I mean, the the question of, is no longer about programs; it's about policy. The United States is the wealthiest country in the history of the world. If you divided the income up of the country today, it's two hundred thousand dollars for every family of four. We are not a poor country. What's the problem is the political power structure that doesn't allow this, these very good solutions that I've just heard. Uh, the question is, how do you change that power structure in a way that permits the, the wonderful resources of the country to be used? And what's interesting about what's building up at the local level is that step by step, they're also changing the power relationships locally 
and hopefully one day nationally, to build up a whole movement that starts with co-ops and worker-owned trusts and land organization and municipalization of power, building a whole different vision over time. That's always the way politics works. Uh, It's not that the ideas, the ideas are terrific. It's building a different power base that can change some of these patterns. And the first question is always, you know, how can we afford to do all that? That was what Mitt Romney used to imply when he said, we don't want Euro-socialism in this country. At the same time, I always think of Dan Ariely of that fascinating book called Predictably Irrational. He did sort of blindfold tests on distribution of wealth, and if they if they didn't have a name on it, 93% of Democrats in this country prefer the Swedish distribution to our own. 92% of Republicans would love a much more nearly equal distribution. So how do you get it, Gar? Well, that's, that's, that's what I, I think that's true. In fact, if you look at people under 30, uh, the word socialism is more favored now than the word capitalism. So it's, it's not about the people. It's about the power structure. Uh, the, old, the old way to do it was build up labor unions that helped support wages but also supported progressive policies. And we're, we're well past that. Labor unions have really disintegrated, unfortunately. So I think what's happening locally is the buildup of new power structure around ownership change, around electing mayors, around taking, as in Boulder, they took over the municipal utility. It's a long, slow process in a very, very rich country. You know, people say you can't afford it. Well, anytime we seem to go to war, all of a sudden there's plenty of money around. And mm-hmm. the country is, shows how really rich the economy is if you have the will to begin using the economy in a progressive way. Gar, stand by. I want to introduce Felicia Wong, who runs the Roosevelt Institute in New York, a live spark of the Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt visions that saved the spirit and the economy of this country through the Great Depression in the 1930s. Felicia, welcome to Open Source. Summon that imagination, that courage that we associate with the Roosevelts. Um, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Uh, you know, I think you are absolutely right that FDR is the right starting point. Franklin is the right starting point, as is Eleanor, uh, for tonight's conversation. You know, in particular, FDR faced huge economic challenges and the kind of technological transformation that many of us fear we're facing today. If you look at what FDR uh, had to contend with, he was looking at a country that was moving from a farm economy to an industrial economy. In 1900, 40% of all Americans lived and worked on farms. Mm-hmm. And by 1940, uh, only 17% of all Americans uh, lived and worked on farms. So this is an enormous transformation. So, so what did FDR do you know, in the face of this? He actually used the political process. Uh, Gar is right to mention politics, of course, but he used the political process to build a set of institutions that led ultimately to both growth and shared prosperity. Everything from Social Security, which we've mentioned already tonight, to the National Labor Relations Board, to home mortgages. I mean, this was a kind of quite bold experimentation at the time. 
Um, and, you know, FDR was able to do that because uh, he was a congenital optimist in a way. Uh, he believed that inequality was not inevitable. Uh, we at the Roosevelt Institute believe the same thing. Um, we do definitely think that there is no single program or single policy that's going to solve the problems that we face. Uh, FDR obviously saw the same thing. Uh, and we think that with the comprehensive agenda, we can actually rewrite the rules of today's economy to promote more growth and reduce inequality at the same time. Felicia Wong, the, the modern... Si- say, hold on one second. To do this, you know, we really have to connect to the American people, just as FDR did. That was one of his great gifts. I was going to say the modern sophisticated wisdom about FDR is that, yes, he was a worker's hero, a liberal who, who guaranteed a certain stability on the shop floor uh, among seniors. At the same time... He said he would, and he did, save capital ownership in this country. I wonder, and I want Gar's view on this too, would he do it again? Could he do it again? Essentially to save the system by changing it fundamentally. I think FDR would absolutely save the system, uh, you know, by uh, looking at its strengths and building on those strengths, uh, but attacking uh, its weaknesses. I think he would do a couple of things. Um, you know, most public opinion polls will show that people's number one concern is that jobs don't pay enough to live on. Ninety um, percent of all Americans are more concerned today with getting by, staying still, or, or, or remaining stagnant. They really don't have the hopes of getting ahead. And FDR obviously recognized those kinds of problems when he took office in the 1930s. And so he recognized have to start with the kind of kitchen table issues that people struggle with, um, you know, uh, wages, uh, not only wages, but regular schedules, paid sick and family leave, child care, the kinds of things that your guests have been talking about this evening. I, I want to toss it back to, to Gar. Could FDR, would FDR save this system? So I'm very sympathetic to the program that Felicia outlines and, and has been outlined so far. Uh, the difficulty that, that I've been trying to point to, and, and it's fairly well understood by many uh, social scientists, is that the power base that allowed Roosevelt to do what he wanted to do was, one, there was a crisis, and two, there were strong labor unions that gave power to the Democratic Party. Uh, they were peaked at 35% of the labor force. Now we're down at 11% of the labor force in unions and declining, only 6% in the labor force. That's happening all over the uh, and it explains a great deal of why some of the traditional programs are not being enacted in many, many parts of the world. So I think Roosevelt would want to do his program, but I think we need to build a new power base and a new politics that will achieve the same results. I would like to see virtually all the same outcomes that Felicia has just been outlining. Felicia Wong, give us a last dose of FDR. Cheer us on. Um, Well, you know, I absolutely agree with uh, what Gar said about the need for a new politics. Um, The one thing I'll say in addition is that it's true that unions, as they need to be, not as strong as they were in the 30s and 40s, but FDR did one thing critically important. He attacked the banks. He, uh, He was very concerned about the market power that banks had. And I think we need to basically marry the kind of kitchen table issues I talked about. We're taking a break, Felicia. When we come back, the social gospel that Pope Francis preached to Congress. Harvey Cox, the Harvard divine, will read him for us. 
This is open source. I'm Christopher Light, and this is open source on the work and the work world that lies ahead. Mr. Speaker, the Pope of the Holy See. Business is a noble vocation directed to producing wealth and improving the world. It can be fruitful source of prosperity, especially if it sees the creation of jobs as an essential part of its service to the common good. Never before this week had a Pope of the Catholic Church, the Vicar of Christ on Earth, addressed the Congress of the United States, an enormously popular world figure by now, a radical in the seat of orthodoxy. Pope Francis quoted Thomas Jefferson's American scripture, but he added the touch of an even higher authority and of a global conscience, too. He put our work and welfare issues, justice and community, front and center, but in his own context— If politics must serve the human person, he told a joint session of House and Senate, it cannot be a slave to the economy and finance. Our guest, Harvey Cox, for many years taught the Harvard course on Jesus and the moral life. His farewell semester underway this fall is titled God and Money. Welcome back, Harvey Cox. What did you hear from the Pope in the House chamber, and what were you feeling Uh, Thanks, Chris. Uh, Let me point out, since we're talking about work here, that he mentioned favorably, in fact, the the pivotal figures in his talk were Martin Luther King and Dorothy Day, also Abraham Lincoln and and Thomas Merton. But uh, those two figures, let's talk for a moment about Martin Luther King and his last days in the world before he was assassinated. He was in Memphis to support the garbage workers strike. He was there with people who wanted to have better working conditions and higher wages. He was reaching out beyond simply uh, race relations and racial integration. He'd already taken a very decisive step against the war in Vietnam, and he was working now on that front. Dorothy Day, as the Pope himself said, uh, founded this journal called The Catholic Worker. One of the Uh, very few periodicals that came to my house as a kid growing up, that famous print of... Christ in the breadline, you had to look twice, and of course it's Jesus in a depression line. Yeah, go ahead. Well, one of one of the things that was occurring to me as I watched him and heard heard these words is that all these phenomenal ideas that we've just heard in the first part of this program, every one of them worth doing, and uh, and Gar Alparovitz's suggestion that what we need is the will, the political will, to do do that. Now, what we need for the political will is an underlying moral impetus, and a vision. He talked about Martin Luther King bringing a dream, a vision. Uh, If we had that underneath supporting and energizing the political process, we might move somewhere. Without that, I don't think we're we're, we're going to do it. I'm encouraged by the fact that even though the faith communities, churches, and so on took a while, they eventually became the backbone 
of the civil rights movement. Uh, unexpectedly, I mean, who was who thought that the these black churches in the South were going to become the vanguard yeah. of a whole new chapter in American history, and uh, and also the the uh, the peace movement uh, with the Dan Berrigan and and uh, William Sloan Coffin and, and all the rest, and the, and the and the Buddhist monks who came over here and told us like this is a bad thing you're doing, get out of that. So if the underlying message of the Pope. Uh, combining the spiritual and the moral and the political. Some of the commentators today were saying, oh, well, he really wasn't very political. Baloney, he was political. He was, he was advocating policies in his own mild-mannered way that would be uh, transformative if, if they went into effect. And uh, I, I think we need more voices like that. I wish there were more. And let me just add one thing. He's a, he's a big one. He's a big one. But look— the one thing that bothered me a little bit was not the Pope himself, if I might say this, but the framing of the Pope by much of the media. Of course he's the Pope of the Catholic Church, but he's, he's admired and loved by millions of people who are not Catholics, Protestants and Jews. I have a friend who says he wants to organize an Atheists for Francis group. <laughs> he's got friends and supporters everywhere, but he was framed uh, a lot today as, oh, the Look at all these Catholic members of Congress and Catholic Speaker of the House and Catholic this and that. And he was greeted by, by uh, uh, prelates and, 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 and all the right. rest. I would like to have seen a, a more representative group of those who love Francis and are listening to his message and doing something, but they weren't on the screen. A couple of things he, other things he didn't mention. He didn't mention unions, really. He didn't do his sort of basic thing about consumer capitalism and what it's doing to our souls. He did give a wonderful sort of living witness to just the idea of a social gospel, mm -hmm. a commandment to look after everybody. And he sort of revived what we never talk about in this country, which is a sort of social democracy that is not about me, 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 uh, but it's about the general welfare and the general condition. Um, so where does the conversation go from there? And what is it, what, how would he address the work issues we've been talking about? Uh, well, look, uh, not only is, 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 is he the pope and he's a Jesuit, much was made out of that. He's a Latin American. He's the first Latin American in this office. And Latin America is the place where, the, where liberation theology was born and, and where it began to spread around the world, the preferential option for the poor. I don't think the cardinals who elected him knew how steeped he was and continues to be in everything, everything he says, everything he demonstrates. Uh, now, uh, as you mentioned, I'm hoping that the next encyclical that he issues after the one on uh, e economic inequality and the one on the, the climate will be on work. Uh, and I am contributing something. I hope they pay mm. some attention to it in Rome because I I, I'm, I'm really hoping that may be the next – uh, encyclical, and I hope it he's your make... guy. You think the time is ripe for an encyclical on, uh, on work? What would it say? Well, it would say it would say the following: being uh, uh, having working is part of being human. Uh, the person should be at the center of the economy. He says that all the time. We have this impersonal economy. We need a personal economy. Working is central to who we think we are, mm -hmm. our worth as human beings, uh, our making a contribution to the society. And it's just heartbreaking to, to, the, to the Pope and to many of us that there are millions and millions of people all around who are yearning to work. And they're, they're, they don't have jobs. 
Uh, mm-hmm. so one of your guests already mentioned there thirty percent in 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 uh, in Spain, forty percent in Italy, twenty five percent in in the uh, black sections of America. These are people who want to work, and they want to work not just to earn a salary. Of course, they do, and they should have a living wage. They want to work because that's the way you're a part of the human enterprise. And and the other thing that I hope this encyclical does, and I'm I'm I. I, I think we need only uh, jobs. We need jobs which have a built-in dignity to them, where you're not doing mm-hmm. something repetitiously over and over again. It's not a numbing routine. We talk about a lot of people probably use the excuse. They say, "Look, technology is taking you out of these jobs away. Let's turn technology." to our own purposes rather than having it drive us. You, you say it very well, and, and particularly this point that working is, and we all know it, it is central to our sense of ourselves, of the everyday, and we find it on the street. It's hard to find, even among low-wage workers, people who don't, in some expressive way, love their job. That's right. Gar Alperovitz, do you want to, do you want to uh, gild Harvey Cox's lily here? Yes, um, I think the I, I agree. The Pope has taken a very powerful stand, but but I think he's actually gone further than that in many areas. Uh, he in his other encyclicals, he has taken on the, the subject of capitalism directly, and he's opened up the, a much deeper critique, both in in speaking in in Bolivia recently, and also in his discussion of climate change. He's raising systemic questions of and and moral questions. He doesn't give us a direction other than the moral direction, but he's asking whether traditional capitalism can can do the job. And in, in that sense, he's gone even further than, than Bernie has. Uh, and he's also, uh, in many cases, uh, supported different forms of ownership. Worker companies, for instance, is something the Pope has already talked about, a different form transforming ownership. So I think he's opening a space for... Uh, as I talked about earlier, the, the deepening of the systemic crisis we're facing both in the United States and globally, uh, he's offering us a direction that, that begins to suggest we've got to go past both of these tr- these failed systems, uh, traditional state socialism uh, and traditional corporate capitalism. And I think that is that is the direction that moves us even beyond the Roosevelt idea, for instance, of capitalism reformed by labor-supported social democratic or liberal politics. I think that's the passing era, and I think this pope uh, understands it and is helping open that direction. Uh, Bernie Sanders understands it. People show that the young people, the polls data show that they, they understand that there's something much, much deeper than politics as usual uh, that's building up in the country, both in attitudes, in talk, in, speak, in speech, and moral leaders like the pope, but in all these experiments that are popping up underneath the the radar that we talked about earlier, uh, a different way of thinking about it. Uh, and the hope is in how far that goes and how much of a politics builds on it that has real moral content. I agree entirely with, with Harvey on this point. And, so and I, I, hope that way. I wish both of you would fill in that blank between the moral impulse and the sort of political stalemate or, or, well, I, I or, or, the, or just the way vacuum. I think about it, and I, I suspect Harvey will, will agree, the way to think about it is historically. Um, what happens over time is first the critique and the, the discouragement and the loss of belief in the existing power because it's failing. And then slowly awareness that either there's a new direction or we continue the old trends. And then experimentation begins. And this is all the, the prehistory of the New Deal looks just like this experimentation, changing sense mm. of politics, and then beginning to build up political power in a different way, building new institutions. Laying ground. I call that 
it's not typical reform. Reform assumes the existing system and you kind of clean up around the edges. And it's not really revolution, which is an explosive change. Uh, the term I found people understand is something like evolutionary reconstruction, building from the bottom, changing institutions, changing politics. And the last thing that changes is the national government's politics. Uh, but I think that's where what's, what's potentially happening in many parts of the world. Certainly just under the radar in the United States, there's a great deal of that going on. And young people are intensely involved in it, in what's called the new economy movement, which the press hasn't quite caught up with yet, but it's vibrant in many, many cities around the country. Can, can I call it... Uh, Boston, by the way. Uh, can I call it, on behalf of the Bostonians, uh, pragmatic realism, yes. exp- American experimentalism. Harvey Cox, how do we get from the the urge to the action. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm running into this, uh, Chris, in this course I'm giving, gave it last I year. I want to hear what God thinks about Well, money. God and money. Uh, and uh, more, more and more students, uh, divinity students, students from the law school, from the business school, and so on, are taking this course, and they feel exactly uh, the feeling that uh, Gar is describing. Something is really basically wrong with this system. But they are very discouraged about whether you can do anything about it. Because the political mechanism just seems uh, not to have any handles on it. They don't. They, they're they're discouraged and very frustrated. And the work that Gar is doing, which I have my students read, by the way, in this course, he's saying this is already going on. Just look around the country. Look at Nebraska. Look at Cleveland. Look at these places. You don't have to make this stuff up. It's actually going on. We need to communicate with each other. And we need we need to be in touch, and we need and then need to feed that into uh, uh, vibrant political uh, uh, policies and 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 changes. But uh, we can be encouraged by the fact that we're not we're not starting from scratch. That we have all this going on. We are an experimental people. This is the this thank is you the, the land of pragmatism. Gary Alvarez, do you want to point us to your favorite project in and around Boston? Uh, in and around Boston, there is a group setting up a planning and land trust air group. I'm blocking the name of it in the center of Boston and using some of the universities and hospitals to support it. I give you its name, but I can tell you that there's a lot going on in Boston. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll go and find them tomorrow. Um, uh, so uh, how soon, how possible, how encouraging do you, do you both want your... Students I would and, also and your, say that your team there's something to be. called the New Economics Coalition in Boston, the headquarters right. in Boston. It's a national organization, and there's 140 different organizations around the country that belong to it, all of which are doing these kinds of experiments that Harvey and I are both talking about. Again, just under the radar, there is a pot boiling that most people haven't quite caught up with, and the press hasn't quite picked up on it, but I think it's going to explode when they find out what, how much is going on. We'll break their door down tomorrow, but... What are we talking about in terms of a five-year, ten-year changed face of work, of this economy, this sense of stalemate, sense of torpor? Well, I'm a historian, and and Harvey's a theologian. I I think these are decade-long, many decade processes. I sometimes say to young people who are working on this, do you want to play this game? This is serious stuff. The the prices of playing this game are the chips are decades of your life. Uh, My heroes, if you want an analogy are the people in Mississippi in the 1930s and 40s, not the 1960s, although I admire them, because they laid the groundwork for what came in the 60s, just as the people in the 1920s laid the groundwork for what happened in the the New Deal. This is the prehistory of the next great change. We're not yet at the history, but that's when the exciting stuff happens. It's pretty easy 
to get in, into a movement when the movement's moving. It's really hard and exciting when you're starting a movement and building it, which is what's happening so, as, in so many parts of the country. That's fascinating. Harvey Cox, do you want to bless all this? <laughs> I sure do. And I think, but, actually, my, my arc of history, as, as, as King said, is always upward. But it's rather rugged, up and down. And we're, we're in a stage now where things are building under the surface, just under the surface, and it could pop at some point. It could pop. Uh, and uh, we have to be ready for that because uh, it could, could pop through kind of a collapse too, which would be we have to be ready for. But su a sudden change is not completely impossible within the next uh, five or ten years, I think. You're I think that's right. I, 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 in some sense, I think the longer process is a better process in some sense, because people learn and develop and build as they go, uh, it's, it's frustrating. Um, a sudden collapse that sometimes goes to the right rather than right. the progressive side of, of the fence. But, but we've got a lot of learning and building to do, and, and what's exciting is that's, that's what's starting up, well past starting up in many parts of the country. Gar Alperovitz, thank you enormously, and keep doing it. Keep us posted on Boston and elsewhere. Harvey Cox, always... A pleasure to think of wonderful radio we've made over many years now, Harvey. Not so many years, Chris. Don't exaggerate. Well, I'm thinking of Christmas Eve. When was that? <laughs> oh. uh, Fifteen years ago. Mm -hmm. um, talking about the greatest gift we've ever given or received. Thank you. Thanks also to Felicia Wong, Matt Brunig, Dylan Matthews, and Pavlina Ch Chernova. This concludes a three-part series on work in America to be resumed any time when you least expect it. It's been produced with The Nation magazine. Please visit our website, radioopensource.org, and tell us what worked or what didn't and what you're still waiting to hear. Our show is produced this week by Max Larkin, Zach Goldhammer, and Connor Gillies, with help from Azan Reed, hard workers, all of them. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our shop steward. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source. Bad.